Ladies, gentlemen, boys, girls, and those of you somewhere in between, welcome to another episode of The Chris Roberts Show. In this episode, I'm talking with Robert O'Tone, a horror author from New York. This was a great episode. We had a lot of fun talking with each other. We cover a lot of material about his writing, about his writing techniques, and a lot of other stuff besides. I'll include full details of all of his works and his social media profiles in the show notes below. In the meantime, let's get into the show. The pen is mightier than the sword. A podcast for writers. The Chris Roberts Show. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. You're an author, teacher wine enthusiast and cigar aficionado from New York. You've recently set up Spooky House Press, an independent publishing company, and you run the very intriguing Voices from Gilgo project. Now, I'm going to try and unpack all of that. There's loads of potentially interesting stuff in there, but the first thing I'm going to ask is about the cigars. Yeah. (laughs) I'm, (laughs) I'm quite keen to kind of find out about the cigars. Have you got like a massive collection or something like that? I've got quite a few. I've probably got, as of right now, I probably have about 120 cigars uh, at a moment's notice. Uh, I'm, I'm always ready to smoke whenever the opportunity arises. As soon as the weather gets around 55 degrees, I'm outside having a cigar. It's just, it's my, it's my favorite way to relax. It's my favorite way to sort of unpack the day after work. It also allows me to really let my mind wander. And a lot of my stronger stories have found resolutions to problems while having a cigar. So it's meditative for me in a lot of ways. I was going to ask if that's that kind of relaxed time is where you do a lot of your kind of thinking and sort of, um, is that where the muse tends to approach you and provide you with your ideas? Yeah, I love that. I love the way you put that. Yeah, the the muse must somehow be in the smoke uh, of the cigar. And um, I find that the different layers and levels of a cigar also help me as well, because the flavors transition. In a good cigar, flavors will transition. So it might start off a little sweet, then it'll get a little spicy, then it'll usually mellow out and get a little earthy. Earthy is my favorite type of cigar. Um, And... If that happens, then you can enjoy the flavor while also understanding the notes of narrative at the same time. And that narrative will shift, changes will occur. And that's always helped me. I probably overthink it. Like the average cigar smoker probably isn't sitting there being like, yeah, the, 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 blah, 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 blah. They're just smoking and drinking or whatever. But I really, I really enjoy it. And I don't, I don't usually uh, drink alcohol with my cigars it's pretty rare um i'd rather have like a nice iced coffee or um usually like a bottle of water i'll have with me uh because i like to trace the flavors i'm really good with flavors so that's why i'm also into wine also i pick up i could take a sip of wine and i could tell you what it's made from what the notes should be and on a really good day i could give you an idea as to the kind of soil that it might have been grown in maybe maybe i've only done that twice and i've only been right those two times so but those are the only two times i've tried it so um 
I'm not like a snob though. That's the thing. So there's a lot of people who are wine and cigar snobs who will be like, I only want a uh, Cohiba or a Davidoff or whatever. And yeah, those are fine and all, but I smoke uh, a fair amount, I would say. Uh, Not every day. I I didn't, oh no, I did have one yesterday, but I don't, you know, in the wintertime, it really dies down for me. And uh, so for me, if I was constantly buying Cohibas and Davidoffs, that would be thousands upon thousands of dollars. So I have found that I can enjoy a bargain stick uh, just as well as I can enjoy, you know, a Cuban. I have two Cubans that my fiance, actually I had four. I have two Cubans. Uh, I'm going to smoke one on my wedding day and I'm going to smoke the other one when she and I buy our house. So I'm saving those last two. They're in my freezer. I'm ready to go. They are victory cigars. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> like an independence day yeah that's what i was thinking yeah <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> I, I, i've smoked um some good cigars on a, on a few occasions but not very often sort of over the years you know there's been an i've got a friend and um he's always kind of liked the idea of it uh, on one occasion we were down in mayfair in in london we was actually pitching for some investment for a potential business idea, which didn't go very well. Um, but on the plus side, there was a tobacconist or a cigar shop or whatever on, on, I think it was Mayfair. And, you know, we went in there to have a look and, you know, he wanted to see what was there to buy. And it was fascinating. It was like a really old shop and like the smell, you know, well, you know, you know the smell of cigars and mm-hmm. it, it was, it was so old. It, it must've been in the woodwork as well. And, it looked a bit like something of Harry Potter, you know, or one of those really old sweet shops. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Everything is made of cedar, uh, in a, usually in a cigar shop, because it retains the moisture, it keeps them fresh. Um, but yeah, I, I love going into a good cigar shop. I have, uh, I'm very lucky. I have a few here uh, on Long Island, and I've been to some really great ones in the city as well, and great ones down in Florida. Florida is probably... America's best cigar area, especially the Tampa uh, area. I don't know how familiar you are with Florida, but Tampa is right on the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, there's a large influx of Cuban uh, individuals who came to Tampa and really, like they call part of Tampa, it's called Ybor City. They call it Cigar City. And there's a brewing company that makes beer there that's called Cigar City Brewing. But the cigars that you have there are just brilliant and the shops are incredible, just incredible. And um, the culture of it is beautiful because there are some big cigar snobs who are really obnoxious, but for the most part, everybody's pretty welcoming and like, Hey, what are you smoking? What is that? That smells great. What, what kind of flavors are you getting? And that's what I dig. When I, we used to go, my friends and I would go to lounges and stuff, usually in the wintertime, obviously with COVID we haven't been doing that, but um, you know, we would go to these places and this guy would be smoking a pipe. This guy would be having, you know, some cigar that I've never had before. So I'd be like, hey, man, let's just what is what are you getting off that? And most of the time you'll find most cigar smokers usually do have a pretty good palate. Um, but, you know, every once in a while, there's the guys who are like, I don't know, man, I'm just here with my friends. Like, I'm not getting a whole lot. It just tastes like smoke to me. And it's like, all right, well, I hope you like it, you know. So how do you kind of like store your your cigars? You got like a temperature controlled area or anything like that? 
I have two uh, desktop humidors that I try to keep between uh, 60 and 70 uh, in terms of the humidity. That's where I like my cigars. Now, uh, the more humid they are, they're going to be a little softer, a little more soft and spongy, which is, I like them a little more on the spongy side. I have friends who like them dry, a little more dry. Uh, so they're a little more firm, but I try to keep mine. I'm actually, I'm looking at it right now. Mine's at 62. So both of mine are at 62, but I also have, a, uh, an office, uh, fridge with a freezer and I have a lot in there as well. And if you don't have a, a humidor, you could just put them in the freezer. I would actually just prefer to not have my humidors and just keep everything in the freezer or in the refrigerator, uh, because that, that keeps them perfectly humid and Whenever you take them out, they'll be a little cold, but like they heat up, it's fire. <laughs> so, uh, they thaw very quickly and, uh, it preserves it in a lot of ways. I've had a cigar that I've been aging now for seven years that a friend of mine gave me when his kid was born. And I was like, when your child is 18, that's when we're going to have this. So I'm aging it for 18 years and I want to give it a go. That's pretty cool. I didn't realize I kind of got better with age. Oh yeah, big time. There, uh, not super long ago, JFK's humidor, uh, that he kept on his desk went up for auction and inside he still had like two or three cigars. Now, you know, 60 something years or whatever, they're going to be dry as hell, but you could bring them back to life. I've done that. You can bring a cigar back to life and make it smokable. So if someone was to do that with those, they would be delicious because the, the cigars he smoked, he, he bought a ton of cigars before the blockade of Cuba. He was really smart. He's like, I'm going to buy all these Upman cigars. That's the company Upman. And they are, uh, at the time they were a Cuban, they still are a Cuban company, but they were made with Cuban tobacco, Cuban leaf, all of that stuff. And he bought a ton of them because he knew that he wasn't going to be able to get them. And that's what he kept in his desktop humidor. How do you kind of go about resurrecting an old one? Is it a matter of putting it in a humid environment? So it kind of, in, you know, sucks in some of that moisture. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you have to pay very close attention to the level of humidity that you have in there. And there's also stuff called cigar juice that you can get. It's a polypropylene blend of water and polypropylene. And you put that in there and that helps humidify it even more. Um, usually it's best if you're nursing a cigar back to health, take it out of, because they usually come in a little cellophane wrapper, take the cellophane wrapper off and just let it breathe. If you can, if you have the ability to put it in there by itself or with another one you're trying to revive, if you put them next to each other, rotate them every other day and keep everything humidified, they'll come back to life. Quite interested in hearing a bit more about what this um, routine is actually like, where you sort of take a cigar out, you maybe go and sit on the back porch or wherever, um, smoke and just let your mind kind of run. Is that a conscious thing? Do you have like a pad nearby where you can just scribble ideas down or is how does it work? I usually use my phone, which is probably a terrible idea because I don't back up my phone. Now that I've said that, my phone's going to die and I'll lose everything. But um, yeah, no, I use my phone, the, the note uh, pad app, or I will email myself. Sometimes I'll email myself something and I actually like that better than the phone app, but I find it's uh, it's helpful to get everything down in real time. So I've I've been driving and my fiance has been sitting next to me and I'll be like, oh, I need you to write something down for me. And she'll just jot it down as I read it to her. And she's like, I don't know what any of that means, but all right, it's done. So yeah, whenever the muse strikes, I what I do is I sit down 
I just, I sit outside, I look around. I usually on the front porch, sometimes on the back porch, if it's like too oppressively sunny and I'll just soak it in for a little bit. I'll put on a playlist. Uh, the other night I made an entire playlist while smoking a cigar and an entire novella came to me in an hour and a half. Every single character, every single plot point. It, it was really crazy how the muse hit me that night. Uh, I was actually talking about it with my therapist and he was like, in an hour and a half? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it all hit me in an hour and a half. So uh, I'll do that. I'll put on a playlist. I'll sit back and then snip off the tip. I I like to use wooden matches. That's my preferred way. I'm not above being like, oh, well, like, you know, I have like a little Bic guy if I need it, but I like wooden matches. It preserves the flavor. But um, yeah, I'll take out a couple, boom, spark it up. Usually take a picture for Instagram because I like to chronicle my cigar smoking. And then um, then it just kind of takes over. I get the first few hints of flavor off the burn. I feel the heat of the cherry burning at the tip of the cigar. Usually it's a little bit lower than where you see it um, red and starting to ash. So I like to feel where that is so I can get an idea if it's burning too fast or if it's burning perfect. The other night I had one that burned like a flamethrower. It was like gone. Um, but yeah, and then I, I just kind of meditate. The music usually will get my mind flowing. Whatever happened to me that day will usually help inform it as well. And then I'll take the phone out. I'll pull up the note app and I'll write some stuff down. It's fascinating. It's really good, really good um, way of, of doing things. I'm tempted to give it a go myself. Do it. Why not? And sit, take a picture of you smoking a cigar. See what happens. Yeah. See if the smoky muse descends. <laughs> <laughs> so you're um, you're a teacher. Uh, so when you're not smoking cigars, uh, chatting to the smoky muse and writing, you're teaching. So you know what kind of age group are, you t- are we talking? You know what subjects? You know what do you kind of do on a day to day basis? I work with adults for the most part. Uh, a lot of our students are from Asia, and I teach English as a new language. And I also teach a course that is uh, suited for high school credit recovery. So uh, students who are older than high school age are able to take this class, and I teach them every subject, more or less, and I get them to a point here in New York, because education is not nationalized. I don't know if it is in the UK. I have no idea. But Education here is not nationalized, so every uh, every state has their own education body, more or less. So here in New York is one of the – New York is probably number two in terms of the how strict the education system is. Massachusetts is number one. Um, and so I will work with them to try to pass the exam that's given in that subject. And I'm, I've taken – for my teacher certification, which involves – getting an associate's, getting a bachelor's, getting a master's, taking multiple courses in professional development. So stuff about like child abuse, uh, uh, child therapy, stuff like that. On top of all of that, I had to pass seven tests from the state to get my license to teach. And one of them was 38 pages of writing for writing essentially a narrative essay about a lesson I gave about Romeo and Juliet. It was torture, but I achieved what's called mastery, which is the highest you can get 
on it. So I was very happy. I was like, uh, this is luck. <laughs> I don't, whatever. I guess they liked it. And you have to do a video and all this stuff. So I've taken a lot of tests. The test for writing and the test for reading in New York State is the hardest test I've ever taken. And I don't need, I didn't need to take it, but I took it because I wanted to see what my students go through. It is torture. It is so hard. So I really push my students in a big way and they like it. They tell me they like it all the time. So it's so hard. So working with adults and especially adults who English is not always their first language, it's really hard for them. And New York State doesn't afford them a translation tool. New York State doesn't afford them additional time. There's none of that. So it's a little, in my opinion, it's unfair, but that's what New York State has given us to work with. So that's, that's what I do. That's what I teach. I love it. It's really rewarding. My students are incredible. Very lucky. So are we talking written English that we're t- teaching them? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we start with grammar rules. I hate teaching grammar rules. Like I would rather be waterboarded than teach grammar rules. But we start with that. And usually we, I focus heavy on writing. I, we have another English teacher on staff. And I tell her, if you focus on the grammar, I'll focus on the writing. And I get them to a point where they're writing a cohesive paragraph. They understand the structure of a paragraph and what one, every single one needs to have. How many sentences should it be? When do you use a quote if you need it? All, all of these different sorts of things. So I like to sort of teach writing and I tell them this. I like to teach them to write like a Navy SEAL. They get in, they make their point and they get out. That's kind of my motto with that. And they adapt really well to it. They also like the fact that I deprogram them. A lot of the students here in America, because like I said, it's credit recovery. So if we have a student who maybe drops out when they're 16, but they need to get their high school diploma, they'll come back to us and be like, yo, I need these classes. And when I say like, how many sentences is a paragraph? They're like, oh, nine or 10. And I'm like, what? Like, why would you ever write nine or 10 sentences for one paragraph? And it's always, oh, that's what my teacher told me. Paragraph doesn't need to be any more than three if you're good at it. So that's how I teach them to do it. Introduction, quote, explain the quote, done. That's it. Three sentences. You could write a whole essay in 15 sentences if you're lucky. Having that kind of understanding and that, that continue, having those rules and things like that continuously in your mind, do you, has that kind of helped you as a writer yourself, do you think? I think so. I think I know when a paragraph has gone too long and I know when it needs to be broken up. Sometimes I'll, I'll miss it. I'll get too carried away with my own stuff and my paragraphs will be like seven or eight sentences long. And that to me, that's far too long, but. For the most part, I, I think it helps with pacing for sure, knowing that attention spans are short these days. I get that. You know, it's not just children, it's adults too. It's everything. It's it's you know, we can't invent we can't invent this and expect to be able to disconnect from it any time. It's like raising a heroin addict. You can't just say, like, stop doing that. No, it's here. That's life. So Writing to that level of um, attention is key. And I read a lot of, of I read something recently where one paragraph went on for a page and a half. And this was in a big novel. Um, meaning big is in like published by Harper Collins or whatever. And in my head, I was like, 
Oof. Like I, I would, I couldn't, I couldn't write something like that. I just couldn't. This would be like eight paragraphs for me. It's quite comforting in some ways that you know, if sort of the bigger traditional type publishing houses are making these kinds of errors or decisions, at least yeah. uh, it, it provides a bit of comfort to sort of in you know indie pendant type pub, you know publishing houses as well, doesn't it? You know, who oh, yeah. who need to kind of strive maybe more to kind of get that foothold absolutely i uh i read recently a, a couple of your short stories uh support which i really loved uh f- falling asleep in the rain and that clear structure in your writing really comes through you know it's easy to read it, it flows very well there, there's no kind of errors to trip you up as you're reading you know that sometimes Thank you do see Thank you so much. That means a lot. I appreciate it. Support is one. I feel like that's that's the the one that everybody really really likes in my collection. That's the one everyone is always telling me, like, "Hey, turn that into a novel, would you?" And I have an idea to turn it into a novel. And uh, I'm doing a lot of research into um, traditional folklore of the the rabbi and the you know that sort of uh cultural background and whatnot and i'm working with a gentleman who is jewish that has given me a ton of good material to work with and he is such a sweet guy his name is eric and he's a member of the horror writers association with me and uh he's given me an embarrassment of riches to kind of throw into this thing but uh, yeah, support is that was fun to write. That was one of the first ones that came to me for that collection, because I think um, I think it's important to look at things from other perspectives. So, in the example of of support, how would they feel? How would these things feel? Vampires are getting hunted down all the time in every movie, you know, unless it's what we do in the shadows, which is awesome. Um, so other than in that, really, vampires are always the bad guys, except in I Am Legend, where they're clearly not the bad guy, regardless of what version of I Am Legend or the Omega Man or whatever you read um, or watch. They're always creatures of the night. And it's like, well, no, they have feelings, too. I never read the True Blood books. I watched the first season of it, and that's cool. But, yeah, I just... My vampires are relatively normal people. <laughs> Still, like they, they just happen to really want blood. <laughs> I really liked. I really liked the um, the fact that during the eighties there was the the you know the HIV or AIDS um, situation, and, and that impacted yeah. them. And then they, you know, they had to kind of make blood banks to kind of protect themselves from that. You know, I thought it was a really clever idea. And uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, I really like that, that kind of idea about shifting perspectives and trying to look at things from other ways. I wrote a piece of flash fiction recently where um, the, the main character's in the oncology department. He's kind of waiting for his verdict. You know, he's had the tests. You go, I build it up. Someone comes out of the doctor's surgery crying and it's like, oh, she's had bad news. And his name's called. Uh, where it's, I call it, I say his, it's it's written from your perspective kind of thing, so it could be mm-hmm. anybody. Uh, and then you kind of go into his room and he tells you that it's a stage four brain tumour, the, the kind of worst you can get. 
Mm-hmm. And then the character goes, oh, thank God for that. I thought, I thought that was going to be bad news. Um, and and <laughs> basically the idea is people assume that death's bad, but what if it was actually the better option, you know, and if we knew it was a better option and you wanted that, you know, it's a bit of a strange idea, but I like that. Yeah. A bit of a twist around. And th- then the doctor's kind of saying, yeah, I hate having to tell people they're going to live. <laughs> <laughs> That's very twilight zoney. That's so twilight zoney. Like um, the, the one with the girl with the face, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, it reminds me of that a lot. You know, they take the stuff off her face and she's gorgeous and everyone's like, ah! <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. I want to read that. Can you send that to me? I can send it. You yes. know, you just told me the ending, but still. <laughs> it's only short. Anyways, I, I can send it to you. I've, um, I, find, not... I have so much love and respect for people who write Flash. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but no, like, fine. I have such a hard time writing Flash. I just submitted a 141 word Flash piece to a magazine that I love. And I'm like, I, I don't care if I get paid for it. I just would love to be in this magazine because it's just so cool and so awesome. Um, but I wrote it last summer and it's essentially about a guy who wakes up with no skin and how he reacts to that. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's quite horrifying, isn't it? <laughs> I'd like to read that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it to you. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to a lecture with... Oh God, I, can't, I feel bad. I can't remember his name, but uh, he ta- he basically made the connection that writing Flash is like writing a good joke, and you start with the punchline and work back from there. And that's kind of what I was thinking of in terms when I've tried to write Flash. I'm like, okay, well, what's the punchline? How do we get there as fast as we can? And I think that that's it's such a great skill. I I, I have such a hard time with it. I have a hard time keeping my stuff below like 2000 words. So hard. Is short, a short story is your kind of main format that you go for or do you go? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've written uh, two novels, well, one and a half novels. And uh, the, the first one is a, a YA horror science fiction kind of thing. And that's out on submission with some agents right now. So hopefully fingers crossed but who knows i don't really care and then this other thing i'm 260 pages in and in my mind i'm only halfway through (laughs) and but i don't want to end up with a giant doorstopper novel because i don't buy those often and again it goes along with the attention span thing and that those are only getting shorter so i would like to pare it down so i'm taking a workshop this summer with paul trembley and i'm hoping to work on it get his views on parts of it that I could maybe help pare it down because if you're going to listen to somebody probably good to listen to the guy who's nominated for a Bram Stoker award every year and is going to have a movie made of head full of ghosts any day now so probably a good idea to listen to him I would say he's definitely doing something right (laughs) I would imagine so (laughs) have you considered maybe breaking it into two books having a sequel that's a cool question I've thought about, I do have plans for a follow-up to it, but it, this first story, I have ideas of how to shorten the pages. I'm just going to do some time jump stuff with it and um, it'll be fine. Like when it's done, it'll hopefully only be around three to three fifty pages. That's the max that I would like to go with it. But yeah, I do have plans for a follow-up to it. That's not, 
it, it serve as a thing on its own, but it's sort of a backdoor sequel to it in the way that Split was a backdoor sequel to Unbreakable. If you remember uh, the little, you've seen those movies, yeah? Yeah. So when that final moment happened in Split and I heard the music from Unbreakable, I think I was the only one in the movie theater who was like, <gasps> why is he using the music from Unbreakable? And then it shows uh, Bruce, uh, the diehard. Well, oh my God. Willis. Yeah, thank you. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> when it showed Bruce Willis, I was, I was like, oh my God, this has been Unbreakable 2 the whole time. That's so crazy. So that's kind of what I'm doing with the sequel to this thing that I'm writing out. And I'm actually like chomping at the bit because I really want to get to the sequel story. And that's probably bad that I have that feeling that I want to wrap this first one so I can get to the second one. Probably not a great, not a great idea, but because the first one does need its time to breathe. Sounds quite interesting. It brings back to me the topic of the idea or the writing kind of having different ideas from your own and kind of, taking a life of you know well, that's what you want really isn't it that kind of flow and yeah. just to be that kind of conduit i suppose to the muse the smoky muse the smoky muse yeah and it's the smoky muse's fault that this second and potentially third thing popped up because it's just it's something i keep coming back to and it's it's just so interesting to me this is the thing that has the ties i mentioned in before before we started, dear listener, I mentioned there was uh, something that I had ties to Rendlesham Forest in the UK. And this thing is the thing that has ties to that. Uh, the spooky events that have occurred there and whatnot um, over the centuries, right? I mean, it's been a long time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And um, I think that that's such an interesting area, too, of the UK, that if I was to visit, I'd be like, we're going there. I really want to go there. There's like certain things that I'm dying to see. I want to see what's left of Hadrian's Wall in London. Like that's something that really matters to me that I really want to see. And it's just the idea that the Nazis destroyed so much of it. And it's like, there's only a little bit left. Like, oh, Tony, you have to get there to see it before it's gone. So that's something I'm dying to see. And going to Rendlesham Forest is the other one. Have you heard of a place called Borley Rectory? I think that might be in England somewhere. I think it's England. No, I never heard uh, of that. Apparently, it's the most haunted place in England. It's like a old stately home from the 1700s or something like that. Really kind oh of God. messed up stuff going on there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm in. Let's go, please. <laughs> I also would like to go to Enfield to see where all that went down, because I know that that's like, oh, this is England's Amityville. And Amityville, by the way, the Amityville Horror House is about 25 minutes from where I live. Is it? Uh, uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. And um, a lot of people like to say that nothing happened there. But I can tell you that during my research of the Voices from Gilgo project and all the police that I talked to, really? things happened. Things happened there. Yeah. That's interesting. But, yeah. I can't, I'm not going to name the cops or anything, but they're like, yeah, we still get calls. For sure. That's a good uh, segue into kind of the next topic then, I think, um, before we kind of get into kind of like the writing processes and kind of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Really, really keen to hear more about the Voices of Gilgo project, uh, which is an investigative project highlighting the events, theories and individuals involved in one of Long Island's most infamous true crime cases. So tell me a bit about the project and for those who are maybe not familiar with Gilgo Beach and those, the things that happened there, maybe a bit of a summary. Sure. So in 2011, multiple bodies were found 
in an area of Long Island called Gilgo Beach and Oak Beach, which is on the south shore. If you look at Long Island, it looks like a fish. And along the belly of the fish on the south shore of Long Island, there are stretches of beach. And Long Island is sort of known for its beaches. Think Amity, Amity Island in Jaws. That's kind of what Long Island is like, especially in the summertime. Uh, we rely on summer dollars, that kind of thing. So along that south shore, there were multiple bodies found. Multiple. I'm talking north of, let's, let's just be fair and say 10, more than 10. Okay. Um, we're also talking pieces of bodies. We're also talking the body of a toddler. Um, it's dark. It's a dark story. And that has never been solved. And it's now over a decade later. There's been a lot written about it. There are other podcasts about it. Now, my podcast was really just meant to be a hobby. I had, I was a journalist and I had covered the Long Island serial killer, which is also the Gilgo Beach killer, which is also the Craigslist killer. This occurrence is the reason they took the back page advertising off Craigslist. So this, this story is the reason why you can't go on Craigslist and hire a sex worker because of Gilgo Beach. So I was researching it as a journalist. I got close to some of the victims, family members, and some other individuals who were suspects, who were not, they weren't, they didn't have anything to do with it, but they were suspects because they were shady individuals, let's say. I put air quotes around that. And um, so in researching it, it was more just, I made no money off the voices from Gilgo. And I mentioned that because some of the victims' families accused me of profiting off their loved ones' stories, which is totally inaccurate. Um, never made a penny off it, which uh, that was not my goal. My goal was to essentially keep it in the public eye because it had been a long time since any kind of revelation had occurred. Since then, I did a six-part uh, miniseries about it, and I didn't want to do like a three-hour schmooze. I just wanted it bite-sized. This is the information. This is my theory based on what I've learned from police officers and people involved uh, and people who seem to know a lot more than I do. And I'm just going to kind of cobble this together without naming any names because A, I don't want to get sued. B, I still live here. Uh, and C, I have family and friends here that I would rather not have hassled by these individuals who killed these women and one man and one toddler. Um, so that was kind of my goal was just to sort of keep it in the public eye. Now, what had happened was multiple bodies of sex workers were found. And in 2012, Long Island got hit by what's called Hurricane Sandy. That pummeled our shores. So Hurricane Sandy made it, that, that, that was the gift that the Long Island serial killer or Long Island serial killers, hint, um, needed. Because anything that was left there is gone fish food now unfortunately or it's just washed out to shore never to be seen again now is my theory 100 percent correct i i don't know like we're never going to know this is not a thing that's ever going to be solved it's certainly not here it's not going to be solved here now it's not going to be solved here 50 years from now it's just one of those things that has no ending and there's been a lot of great writing about it there's been a, a netflix movie based on a book 
about it, um, Lost Girls, which you can watch. Um, I haven't watched it. I read the book, and the book is fine. It t- it does a really good job of focusing in on the actual women who um, were unfortunately killed. But um, there's a lot more to it. And, and actually, and I'll mention this here. It's the first time I've ever mentioned this anywhere. Uh, the toddler and the woman uh, found next to the toddler had nothing to do with the Long Island serial killer. That's a totally unrelated thing. They just, the person who dumped them there took advantage of an opportunity to dispose of bodies and put them there. That's my theory based on information that I've learned since I ended my project originally. I'm doing a lot of, yeah, it's, it's a weird, wild story. I'm actually doing a lot of lectures about it this summer um, for a bunch of different libraries and stuff like that. But um that's always that's part of the the spooky house press thing too like every every library lecture and every you know reading and stuff that i do that generates revenue goes right into the publishing company <laughs> so it's like no oh, yeah cool everything stays in in stasis you know everything stays on an even keel um but yeah the long island serial killers is a, a tragic thing and you know everyone always is like Oh, well, they were sex workers. Who cares? And it's like, well, they were daughters. They were moms. They were people. And sex work is a victimless crime. So, you know, if it was legalized and if there was a way to protect these women, that yeah. would be 10 souls that aren't gone. Yeah, it's pretty harsh, isn't it? I mean, so is, the, is your theory that, uh, I mean, did the, all these bodies just appear on the beach at once or was it over a period of time all at once? Yeah, they were dumped all in one night. After one of the girls who was in the process of being killed disappeared, went screaming out into the marshland area and just disappeared, um, the police were called to the area. And I think that was the panic button mode where individuals who were involved decided to take the bodies that they had had stored. Why did they like to store them? I don't know. Why they kept them under the houses that they used to use there? Um, I don't know. That seems a little dark to me, but also calling one of the victim's sisters and telling him, telling the sister that I'm watching your sister rot is pretty dark too. So these were people who were a little unhinged, yeah. let's say. Um, but what had happened was that that very night, my theory, what happened that night was that they had a truck. They had these women in these uh, burlap bags, which is a key to who may or may not have done it, in my opinion, um, and just dumped and dumped. And actually, what's what's really dark is as they dumped the bodies, they, there's one of the girls was heavier than the others. And right around the time they got to dumping her body is when they started getting really tired and they started dumping the girls closer to the road because it was just at that point, like, God, we just got to get this over with kind of thing. Whereas some of the other girls are, are deeper in the marsh. Um, the heavier girl is a little closer to the road and then the rest of them are just like alongside the road, more or less. It's messed up, isn't it? And that communication, I'm watching your sister or, or whatever. Um, I've heard other stories about serial killers kind of doing that kind of thing. Have you? Heard, I think this might have been a Boston one from the 1800s called Albert Fish. Yep. Heard of him, yeah. And that kind of letter he wrote the parents of one of these children, he, you know, was it, that that is horrifying. I've often kind of thought about that as a possible, not that particular case, but that situation yep. would make a great story because you could build yeah. some real horror and tension around that, can you? 
I have um there there was a a really exploitative movie made of the Long Island serial killer that I don't agree with. And unfortunately I'm friends with the guy who actually played the Long Island serial killer in this exploitation movie and I was really kind of disgusted that he was participating in it. I won't even name the name of it, but um there have been good documentaries and good stories done about it. There's a book called um Oh God, Sunrise Highway. That's what we call one of the highways here on Long Island that stretches east to west. Uh, there's a book called Sunrise Highway by Peter Blauner. That sort, it's a fiction book, but it sort of takes the, the Gilgo Beach situation into, um, consideration and uses that as sort of a springboard. I am working on something also <clears throat> that uses this as a springboard as well. Um, and there's, and a, there's a wonderful documentary series called The Killing Season. Uh, by Josh Zeman that does an excellent job of discussing the case in length. Then it kind of veers off the rails and goes into other stuff that's like, what are you talking about here? But it's a tragic story. And it's a story that I, I just, I've told people in confidence, like what I think really, and like some of the names associated with like who I think, but you know, some of these guys are dead. Some of them are just long gone and it's, it's not a sexy, like, Oh, it's the Zodiac kind of thing. Like that's not what this is. You know, it's not a, a, the Zodiac to me is the most interesting serial killer of all time because a, he got away with it. B, he was smart enough to taunt the police and C, he wore a super villain costume. So that's really neat to me. He's a terrible person because he killed people, but that's interesting. That's not what this is here. Unfortunately. I wish it was just one lunatic, but it's a few lunatics. So this project, is it still ongoing? I know you're, do, you're doing your lectures and, th- and that sort of thing, and you've, you've got the website um, and various bits of information on there. So where, where are you kind of going with this project now? Uh, I have an idea to spin it off and kind of do focus on the, the woman and the toddler, because that story is remarkably compelling to me. So I have ideas that I would really like to do maybe a four or five part series talking about them because I have a ton of information about that, uh, but it needs to be organized. And I'm just so busy with spooky house press stuff and my own personal writing and the planning for a wedding and finishing the year and trying to buy a house. It's just everything kind of um, comes in all at once. So I, I think if I, and, and in the lectures, I'm actually going to be alluding to, the idea of the woman and the toddler being unrelated. I actually have a lecture this week coming up on, I think Thursday, but um, I think there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of value there. And I also, I don't want to use the woman's name and I don't want to obviously use her kid's name. Certainly. And I'm not going to use the person's name who I think did it. But um, if I am right in who I think this person is, he's still out there and he is more of a, traditional serial killer type than the long island serial killer is or was interesting i'll keep an eye out for that and and watch how it develops then thanks so you've recently set up spooky house press let's talk a bit about that how did um, that come about i wanted to create a small press that could give other authors an opportunity it was never really supposed to be about just publishing my stuff. That's not ever what I wanted it to be. And thankfully we've now 
grown to a point where we can afford to buy other people's work and publish it. So we put out a collection called Boarded Windows, Dead Leaves that won two small press awards. And we're so proud of that. And it's by Michael Jess Alexander, who's incredible, incredible, incredible writer, vastly superior to me in every way. And just so proud of that. And that's a beautiful book. Um, it looks beautiful. Great cover by Danny Nicholas, beautiful artist, beautiful writer. So it's a kind of a combination of two great things. And then the fact that it won two awards is just insane. So we put that out in July. My book, my first book, People, uh, which I have a copy of here, is the hardcover. That came out um, October of 2020, October of 2020, I think, or October 2019. I can't remember. And then we put out Michael's book this past July. So that's been almost a year that that's been out. And then my book, my second collection came out in October, uh, excuse me, late September. But I wanted to sort of create a place where I could publish other people. And that's what we're moving into. I would like my stuff to be published elsewhere and only use Spooky Ass Press to publish other people's work. So we're in the very early stages of talking about putting together an anthology for 20, for October of 2022, for Halloween 2022. And uh, that I would like it to be other authors, but other, a few of the authors I've talked to already have already told me well, you have to have something in it. And I'm like, Ugh. so that was me making a disgusting noise. <laughs> I disgusted it myself. <laughs> but um, yeah, and we have a wonderful, we have a wonderful comedy project, very funny project coming out holiday of this year, 2021. And the woman who's writing it and illustrating it is so funny. Uh, her name is Alexis Macaluso. And She's hysterical and I can't wait to see this thing done. So that's kind of moving in a different direction too. So we like, you know, spooky ass presses for spooky stuff, but also I like funny who doesn't like funny things. So when I talked to her about doing this uh, collection of her work, I, I had to publish it because it's just so damn funny. It's just so funny. So I'm really excited about it. I'm going to keep an eye out for that as well. I follow you on the social media channels, so I'll, I'll keep uh, keep tabs. So yeah. you kind of it's kind of horror and science fiction. I think it was mentioned on the website another bit. So I know you don't limit yourself to horror as as such. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things a quote off your website actually kind of grabbed my attention because it's in line with my own preferences uh, was that you focus on the creep factor and and the dread rather than the gore. And that tends to be what freaks me out more yeah. than kind of blood and, and stuff like that. Um, one of the my favourite all-time horror, I guess it's a novella really, is um, Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I think he is a master of that kind of... Creeping dread. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Um, and sort of taking that into account, you know, what are the... You know how how do you make that work in your stories? Because I detected that in you in your pieces that I read, um, particularly falling asleep in the rain. There was definitely a real sense of oh, this is getting creepy. But there was a there was a bit of a gross out in in, in a couple of parts of that. But what held me through the, the whole story was that kind of sense of you know, oh, Christ, what's going to happen here? You know. <laughs> <laughs> 
I I would agree with you about um, the tone of the screw and and Henry James. Uh, Robert Aikman is a big influence on me as well, and uh, certainly Lovecraft. Nobody does creepy better than those three guys. Uh, that dread feeling. Nothing scares me more. I, it's actually this is kind of fun to mention, but I've been playing Resident Evil Eight with the sexy vampire lady. Um, which is literally all that game has to offer because it's awful. But they're, the scariest part in that game... Uh, have you played it? Do you, do you Have you played it at all? I've not played that one. Okay. Do you play games at all? or uh, I haven't for quite a long time. So I'm a yeah, bit I'm, out of touch. Yeah, I'm sort of transitioning to a phase where I just don't have the time. But I'm, I'm Capcom was cool enough to send me one to review. So I was like, oh, sweet. So the creepiest part of the game is a part where you have your child there's like a baby you're holding a baby and you're just walking through your creepy dark house and it's a perfectly normal like think like the house in paranormal activity perfectly normal modern blah 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 but that is so creepy there's shadows did i see something over there that what was that but it's also the oppression knowing that it's going to get scary and that to me is so much scarier or excuse me so much more scary than like I'll put your hand in this box and then boom, it gets cut off or something like that doesn't, that doesn't do it for me. And unfortunately the rest of that game is that it's just like, you know, and it loses. So it's that kind of anticipation. Yeah. Like remember in, um, God, just remember how tense, think of Jaws. All the tension in Jaws is when is this thing going to come out of the water? (laughs) Like I'm so terrified. I don't want to see this thing. I really do want to see it. And when you really think about it, the first time you get a crystal clear look at it is probably right after it's eaten Quint. Spoilers for people who haven't seen Jaws, 1975's best movie. Uh, Probably the greatest American movie of all time. But right after he's eaten Quint, and it comes in, and it's again, it's still all dread at that point. You've watched him eat this guy. But again, you don't get a super clear vision. And then when he comes in, he's got pieces of Quint in his teeth. And that's dark. Yeah. And that's so much scarier or so much more scary than almost anything, really. Just this guy, this this badass was just devoured by this monster, this impossible monster. I mean, it's not impossible because we actually just spotted a 20-footer off the coast of Long Island not super long ago, 20-foot great white. I love that stuff. I love when there's great whites near me. I just get so excited. <laughs> but... um. Yeah, that that kind of creeping dread, the idea that there's something there. And maybe it's not going to get you tonight, but it could get you. Yeah, it's that creeping dread, then something happens, and, you're like, and, and that question, did that happen? And then that confirmation, you know, the bit, the bit stuck in his teeth. Yep. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question. You know, what aspects of storytelling are particularly important or maybe powerful in respect of horror or dark fiction? I love the idea of um, mankind's limits being tested and being pushed because, and Lovecraft does this well, and Aikman does this well, and James is certainly, but there's an idea of going to the absolute pinnacle of what you can understand or the pinnacle of how you could feel and then either pushing past it and succeeding or it just crumbles you completely. And I wrote a story recently. I don't know why I haven't looked at it. I finished it and then I was like, bye. 
but I didn't even send it out to anybody. But there's two characters who kind of stand apart on that. One guy resists and pushes through, and the other guy succumbs in a big way, and it's rough. And it's about that very idea. What is this creeping dread? And even I write the idea of this darkness creeping because I want to really spell it out. Like, no, this isn't a monster in the darkness. This is just the darkness. And when you're in there, there's nothing more scary. So tell us a bit about your um, your own writing journey so far. So, you know, how you first got started, you know, up to the current time. Yeah. Uh, I started writing uh, screenplays and works for the stage. And I've had some stuff performed on stage. I had a thing performed in L.A., which was my first time flying to L.A. <laughs> that was cool. Uh, I had a thing performed in Alaska, which I did not go to because it's, I don't, uh, I'm not going to take a puddle jumper, land in the water and then get on another, no thank you. Um, And then I had a thing performed here in New York and at my um, alma mater college, they performed it also. So that was really neat. And then uh, I went into writing screenplays and I had the Disney Screenwriting Fellowship for a while. That was a lot of fun. And um I just was writing and writing and writing and I could never get an agent with my screenwriting. I, I even having the Disney thing didn't help. And it, it was just so hard. It's so hard because I kept running into the buzzsaw of like, you can get an agent if you have credits produced, but you can't get credits produced unless you have an agent. And it's like, wait, how does that work? So do I have to spend 30 grand of my own money to shoot a, a little movie like i i don't want to do that i don't want to direct i just want to write this shit <laughs> so i'll produce it but i just i don't want to have any any other part of it and so that was really hard so then from there i went into journalism which is how i fell into the true crime stuff and then that changed to uh the clickbaity kind of thing and i was like bye and i went into copywriting and social media and stuff like that and doing a little bit of journalism on the side it was not fulfilling, became a teacher. My dad passed away. And to sort of process my heartache and my emotions, I went back to writing. Because I would remember what he would say. We would watch a terrible movie and he'd be like, you can't write anything better than that? I was like, come on, figure it out. I was like, all right, geez. So started writing um, to deal with him passing away. And my first collection came out of that, came out of the writing that I was doing. And um, just haven't stopped writing since. I got very, I've been very lucky. I joined the Horror Writers Association and um, have a lot of wonderful support from them. Um, I've gotten a lot of great opportunities to contribute to a lot of great collections that I'm really proud of. And uh, the Falling Asleep in the Rain was in uh, a collection, um, which I'm really proud of. And I have a new one coming out uh called for the gods and it's in an lgbtqia plus friendly collection called unburied i'm really proud of that story i really love my lead character so much uh i would love to revisit him but i think at the same time i kind of like where his story ends so i kind of want to leave him alone i don't want to put him through anymore and uh i just really love that character and i love that story so i love writing ya I love writing YA horror and all of that came out of my processing my emotions and, and working with my therapist and the support of my fiance and everything 
she's been awesome with you know spooky ass press just like she's very because i'll say to her like hey i want to do this and she's like hey whatever you want to do for spooky ass press you do it because it makes you happy you know so having that encouragement she's a business owner also so we kind of she has like her business that does awesome and then i have mine that does perfectly fine for me (laughs) so um very lucky uh with that so and you know teaching I'm in the classroom all day. I don't really get a lot of time to write. I'll write sometimes on my downtime at work. I wrote most of the second collection while I was what they call a permanent sub. So basically you show up every day, they pay you X amount for the day, and then you just fill in wherever they tell you to. It sucks. Being a permanent sub sucks. If you're a teacher and you are like, you know that there's a permanent sub in the building, be nice to that person because their job sucks. Um, and also be nice to your custodial staff. I've seen a lot of teachers be disgusting to their custodial staff, and that's not cool. Yeah, they're the hardest they're the no, hardest working dudes in the building. Yeah, there's no need for that sort of behavior. Yeah, no. I I'm always disgusted when I see that. Um it's very disappointing, but it happens more often than you think. But um yeah, just uh Finding the time to write is the hardest part. I look forward to my summers because I like to try to get as much done as possible, but I'm always so busy in the summer too. So it's, it's tough, but I love, I just love it. It's like the one thing that I might be addicted to. You know, I love my cigars. I love wine. You know, I love food. I love good food and stuff, but writing is the thing that I need. I love, I need my fiance too. Wait, let me backtrack. I need my fiance soon to be wife. I'll edit that. I'll cut that bit and stick it at the front of that list. <laughs> <laughs> so what do, what does your writing routine look like? I mean, you mentioned it's hard to kind of find that time, how to, you know, it's hard to kind of carve that time out of your day. Does that mean there there isn't really a routine? It's just a matter of kind of flexing with the times. That's a good question. I, yeah, I, I do have to be flexible for sure. Um, I also have, I've been doing more editing and revising lately than I've been doing original writing. I've got about, I've got about 19 stories for a third collection ready to go. And those are all edited. They're, they've been submitted other places. Only two of them haven't found homes yet. And then I've got about a dozen more stories sitting on my desktop that have notes from people. So like I'll put my version my unedited version at the top. And then I'll put this person's critique notes and then this person's critique notes and then this like underneath it. So then I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this one today. Boom, 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 boom. And I do that. So that's a little faster, but I used to be my most creative in the morning. Used to be during coronavirus. I wrote, I, while I had coronavirus, I wrote a full YA novel and that was exhausting, but it was rewarding because the fever and the worry and the anxiety and stuff helped fuel the story. And that was helpful. Even though I was paralyzed for a night, it was still helpful that I was able to get this full, you know, story done. And um, yeah, at that time, the mornings were my most creative, but now I get it in wherever I can. So usually it's at night, usually it's around eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock at night. If I could squirrel away 45 minutes, I'll bang out a couple pages and that'll, that pleases me if I can get that done. There's a couple of things you've mentioned, a couple of times you've mentioned. Um, so you, you, you know, had coronavirus, 
funneled that into your writing. Unfortunately, your dad passed away, funneled that into your writing. Um, this is a kind of theme that's kind of cropped up over several of the interviews I've had uh, up to this point, actually, of kind of uh, writing as therapy or kind of drawing on those raw emotions to power you know your writing is that something that really makes a difference for you yeah absolutely i think um emotion is probably the number one thing that contributes to my stories uh emotion and fear and then um inspiration uh i also like i i really love deadlines i love working on a deadline i love it because i know i'm gonna i know i'm gonna have something in whether it's accepted or not I don't know. I had the, I just got the fastest rejection of my life the other day. It was less than 12 hours later. Um, oh, that was quick. Oh yeah. And I actually wrote that. I wrote LOL. Haha. That was really fast. And that was my, but and then I was like, thank you so much for taking the time. Cause like rejection to me, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm not, I'm not a person who relies on their writing to pay the bills. You know, I have a retirement plan. I have insurance. I have a salary in New York state. I'm okay. <laughs> so like I, for the people who need the, the spots in these collections that are like, oh, yeah, I write all day. That's my job. It's like, you need it more than I do. So I, it doesn't bother me when I'm rejected. I, I still root for everybody. There's there's a couple writers who have uh, we I, I, personalities just don't jive well, but I still would like to see their success. And, and I like to share my success because the rising tide lifts all boats. That's my feeling. Some people don't feel that way. But yeah, I don't, um, I don't have a problem with rejection and I don't have a problem with, um, taking it on the chin when I need to. I, I'm in three different critique groups. I run one of the three and, um, I get ripped to shreds by my, what I call my heavy hitter, super secret, heavy duty, uh, horror author critique group. They, they beat the shit out of me. Sorry. I didn't mean to curse, but they beat me up. And it's good, but it's good. And uh, it's helpful. So, like, I love that stuff. I don't know. I think I lost the plot on what your question was. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Um, that's fine. That kind of flowed quite nicely. Um, and I'm quite interested to hear about the critique and how you approach that. You know, what do you always use um, a crit a beta readers or, you know, um, people like that? Or, you know, at what stage of your process do you do that? Is it first draft, second draft, third draft? Usually first draft. I'll write a first draft of something. I'll, I'll feel like it's in good enough shape to share with one of my critique groups. And then I will, I'll get eyes on it as soon as I can. I've, I've had, I hit a creative point where I was just producing so much, probably between March to, what are we in, May? I was in a point where I was just churning out and churning out and churning out so much stuff that my critique groups couldn't keep pace with what I was doing. So I was recruiting people that I knew like, Hey, can you give me eyes on this? That'd be great. Hey, can you give me eyes on this? I, I just need a second opinion. I got this due date. If you can have it to me, then great. Can you look at this? Can, like, it was crazy. It was really scattered and really intense. And it was just constantly like, here you go, Rob, here's this, here's this, fix this, do this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Just right back to work. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I love critiques i look forward to it some people dread it and i don't see why anybody would dread it i'm not an introvert i'm just not like i never really have been i don't love 
being around a lot of people, but that's all coronavirus's fault. I just don't trust anybody anymore. It's like the thing. Remember in the thing? <laughs> uh, Kurt Russell's like, nobody trusts anyone anymore. Yeah. Spot on, my guy. That's exactly how I feel. So, um, but yeah, I've always been an extrovert and I've always been one to be like, I want your feedback. Let me know. Like, I don't have a problem taking a beating. And um, so I had two, I'll give you a good example. So the other night in my heavy hitter critique group, I gave them two stories, um, but I had them do three because I needed eyes on something like immediately. So they did one just on their own and then they gave me the feedback. We didn't talk about it in our group. Actually, we did at the very end, but one story they beat the hell out of me over. They did not like it. They didn't think it was hardcore enough. Um, and I, I don't, like you said, I don't really write a lot of gore. But for this one, for me, was a little bit gory towards the end specifically. And they were like, no, you need to go further. You need to go further with this. So they beat me up for that. But then the second one, they were like, oh, this is so Aikman-esque. And that made my night. I was like, whoa. <laughs> but then that one was the one that got the less than 12-hour rejection. Funny how it works, isn't it? You know, what yeah. someone likes, someone doesn't like, that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's it has to do, it's like, it's never a personal thing. I've only ever gotten a personal rejection once that was nasty and it was before coronavirus and it was, it wasn't even a fiction piece. It was a, an essay that I wrote about how impossible it is for young couples to survive on Long Island using a video game called Stardew Valley as a reference point. And this woman, this editor wrote back to me and wrote the nastiest rejection and it was like personal she was like oh you all you new yorkers think you're the most important blah 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 uh in the country we're i'm in detroit and we're important too and it's like this sounds like your own personal issue so thank you so much for your critique have a good day and it was it was weird but that's yeah. the only time and that was a non-fiction piece so that sounds like she's got some uh chip on her shoulder there <laughs> yeah so you mentioned uh, how you thrive under um, tight deadlines and that kind of pressure. Do you purposely impose uh, deadlines on yourself for accountability partners, that kind of thing, in order to kind of get under that yoke? I've never done that before, uh, accountability partners. I've, I have friends who've done it and they've wanted me to do it, but so many anthologies that are looking for uh, that have open calls or anthologies that have said like, Hey, we'd like you to contribute something. Give me something by this day. There's so many. And I feel like that's more than enough. Like I actually have one, the one that I got the fastest rejection, they were June 1st. So I kind of just got that one in under the wire and then boop, right back. But you know, there, there are so many others as well. Um, I, I, no, I've never used account accountability partners, but I think it's valuable for some people who have a hard time meeting deadlines or specifically are writing something that they're personally having a hard time getting into, uh, even if there is no like real deadline that they need to meet. There's still value in anything that helps your process. There's value in like whatever you have to do. I make fun of the like Instagram and Twitter writers who are like, oh, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee and blah, 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 blah. Like, I hate that personally. Like, I hate that stuff. It's like, just do the work. Just shut up and do the work if you need to. But, you know, there seems to be a weird trend in celebrating one's inability to write more so than your actual successes in writing. Yeah, that's a bit bizarre, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't understand that. And it's like, well, 
do you want to sell books and do you want to write? Like, do you want to be a writer or do you just want to talk about writing? Yeah. That's a big difference. Instagram's a strange world, isn't it? It's like uh, on Twitter as well. I mean, apologies if you're one of these people, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, these writer's lifts every five minutes that you kind of say, I mean, do you do that? I've I've tried to get involved in that. I've never gotten one follow yeah, from that's what I was thinking. I, I hate Twitter. I used to love Twitter back in the old days of like garbage Twitter when we used to just like attack Republicans and make them look stupid and be like, hey, what's your favorite band? Do you like Imagine Dragons? Imagine Dragon D's nuts. Like that stuff. I love <laughs> I love that stuff. That was great. Those are the good old days. But now Twitter is made of pitchforks and outrage. And it's just not fun anymore. And there's so many people who have thousands of followers and it's just an echo chamber and art doesn't progress like that. And it's great. Like I I'm very liberal. I'm super liberal and I'm all about it. Like I I'll, I'll be the first to start throwing Molotov cocktails at the fascists like all day, but you need the other side to kind of, inspire you if nothing else to inspire you to create art that rails against it and twitter is not that anymore um and i'm not saying like oh it's bad to be on twitter if you're a republican or whatever i don't know i don't know if it is i'm not a republican so i have no idea but the idea of um just going into an echo chamber and just hearing the same stuff every single day and you know i'll put out a tweet here and there you know, I try to do the John Langan thing. John Langan's like one of my heroes and he doesn't tweet a lot. And I'm like, well, he's one of the three greatest living horror authors. So if he only tweets once in a while, Rob is only going to tweet once in a while. <laughs> so that's kind of, kind of how I'm modeling myself. I'm much more active on Instagram. I think Instagram provides more, um, I think Instagram provides more feedback right away two things but i also think instagram provides a nice um temperature check of what is going to be popular or what is popular or what could be popular especially in the indie horror author scene if you see one really beautiful post of a book and it just looks great you know you're going to see that 800 more times on every other bookstagram person and that's cool because all of these people have like thousands of followers. And if you sell a few books to each one of their people, that's nice. That's really great. You know, that's awesome. That's what it's all about. So, you know, and then you get nice messages from people. I've That's something that's been happening to me within the past, since, since my new latest collection came out. I've gotten like really cute messages from people who've read it that I don't know. And it's like, this never happened to me before. So, like, I still get starstruck talking to other horror authors. Like, I'm friends with Ramsey Campbell on Facebook. How am I friends with Ramsey Campbell on Facebook? He's the greatest living horror author. Like, how do I, how, you know, I have access to him. I could talk to him. John Langan, same thing. Like, if I was to message him, he would probably, I would hope he would get back to me. And he's like, my writing hero. He's one of my writing heroes. Like, this is crazy. Have you tried messaging him yet? I have. I, I I told him how much it meant to me that he he put my collection on, in his article for Locus about the best of the year, and uh, I cried. 
when I saw that. A, a mutual, uh, another horror author friend of mine, Curtis Lawson, is the one who told me about that. He's like, uh, did you read Langan's article? And I was like, no, what are you talking about? And he sent it to me and I saw my name and I was like, I'm very emotional. I'm like a big, dumb New Yorker, like puff New Yorker, hey, pizza, bagels. Like, I'm very much like that. But like, I cry over everything. I watch a movie trailer and I weep. Like, it's, it's bad. So like, when something like that happens, John Langan says something nice about my book. I, I can't handle it because it means so much to me. Yeah, definitely. And it's a massive compliment, isn't it? And it makes everything that I do, it makes me want to do more of it when somebody I really admire and mean their work means so much to me. Linda Addison is another one. She, she did an interview where she says, I love his work. And I was like, oh my God, Jesus. Yeah, it's just, it's insane. It's insane to me that these are things that could happen. And I've never met these people in person, but I've done, you know, panels and stuff. And I've, I've talked to them like this and, you know, meeting them in person, I'm going to be like Chris Farley interviewing Paul McCartney on SNL. Do you remember that? Like, remember when you were in the Beatles? That was really cool. You know, like, that's how I'm going to be when I meet John Langan. I was like, remember when you wrote the third always beside you? That was, that was really cool. And he's going to be like, you're an idiot. Get away from me. And that'll (laughs) be the end of it. Then he'll never talk to me again. But I don't know how I, I don't know how I'm going to handle that stuff. I really don't. Cause like we're going back into in-person events, like next year, Stoker con Brom Stoker awards and stuff are going to be in Colorado. I'm going to go. I have to go. I want to go. I'm dying to meet a lot of these people, but I'm going to be so nervous. And I'm going to be like a sweaty, gross idiot walking around being like, mm, hello. I really like your work. I we're going to have a great time. It's going to be brilliant. You'll love it. <laughs> I'm going to be, I don't ever really get nervous. I really don't like with stuff like this. I don't ever get nervous ever, but meeting people I really admire, I get nervous. I met Brett Easton Ellis, who's probably my oh, really? yeah. writing hero. Yeah. And um, I was so nervous, but in talking to him, I felt so much better because he really made me feel comfortable. And when I took a picture with him, he he was like, <laughs> he had like a bummer face on but i i chucked that up to me putting my hand on his lower back oh. <laughs> in the picture, which i should not have done i don't know why i did i didn't know what to do with my hands so it could have been worse <laughs> i guess so yeah you're right but yeah like meeting meeting people like that like i met stephen king too and like he was just so nice it's just like i these people to me are not just normal people like guys like john langan linda addison brian evanson they're not, to me, they're not normal people because they inspire me so much, but they are normal. Like I, you ha- I have to realize like, dude, like they like pizza and they, you know, they go to the bathroom and they sleep and they get tired and like, they're normal people. And it's just like, God, like what, like if I meet Laird Barron, what the hell am I going to do? If I meet Paul Tremblay, I have, I'm doing a workshop with Paul Tremblay this summer. Like, what am I going to, I'm going to be like staring at the screen being like, you're a master of horror. Help me. It's just, that stuff is crazy to me. Don't forget to post out on your social media so I can see all these things going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna be. You're gonna see me be weird and sweaty and red. Just don't put your hand on anyone's butt this time. I won't. I won't. <laughs> if I ever get to meet Brady Ellis again, I'm gonna not touch him at all. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love Brett Easton Ellis. Is his work bloody brilliant? I love Glamorama. I love that. Oh, one. Glamorama is incredible. I they just did uh, the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. I think it's called or the Brett Easton Ellis book club podcast. Just did a phenomenal episode. They just read Glamorama. And they just did a phenomenal episode about it. And they had um, the comedian Anthony Jeselnik, if you know him. He was a guest on it talking about Glamorama. It was incredible. You really should you should follow. I, I mean, I think you have to – I don't know if you have to pay for it, but it's on YouTube. You could just subscribe to YouTube, and they do live stuff. And it's it's really great. It's awesome. I love it. I love catching that whenever I can. I'll check that out. Yeah. So – where can people find out more about you and what can we expect for the next, I don't know, 12 months or so? People can learn more about me at uh, spookyasspress.com. You can also follow me on the gram, as my friend would call it, the Instagram, at uh, Robert Otone, just my name, at R-O-B-E-R-T-O-T-T-O-N-E. And it's actually, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, where I don't really do anything, it's the same name, at Robert Otone, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, follow follow all of those things if you like. Send a message. Tell me if you like or hate my stuff. That's cool. Make sure you leave reviews for all of the things that you read because it does actually help. And then uh, yeah, you can follow me all over the place. And oh, Goodreads. I like Goodreads a lot. I think it's fun. So you can follow me on there too. Friend me on there. That'll be cool. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a really really good chat. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm glad. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry, like, the listeners don't know that you and I were talking for like a half hour before we even started like doing the actual show because it was we were just vibing. <laughs> we were just yeah. like keeping it up. It was nice. The end is mightier than the sword. A podcast for writers.